welcome to the fourth episode of our new College of Arts and Letters podcast. I'm Hannah, one of your co-hosts and an intern at the college. I'm Sam, I'm also an intern at the college. And I'm Chris Long, Dean of the College of Arts and Letters. And you're listening to The Liberal Arts Endeavor, a podcast by the College of Arts and Letters. Each episode throughout the academic year will feature a different liberal arts story within the college. In this episode, we're talking to Professor of Spanish and Second Language Studies, Director of Language Instruction, and fellow podcaster, Bill Van Patten. Before we get started, though, how was everyone's Thanksgiving? It was good. It was good, although I see Bill, Bill got sick over there. I got oh, sick. No. If I sound funny, it's because I, I'm, I'm working with nasal congestion and <laughs> chest congestion and traffic congestion and <laughs> you name it. I got congestion. We got a major <clears throat> store full of Ricola here on the table. Really? Too bad. This, good thing this is not a TV show. They can see what's on, <laughs> sitting in front of me. My array of accoutrement in front of me here. But. Yeah. Did you guys have a good Thanksgiving? Did you stay around here or what? It was good. I was sick, so I'm on the getting over the sick end. Um, but I ate a lot of yummy food, and that's always the best part, and being home with family. Yeah, mine was lovely. It's very nice. Home's only... 15 minutes away from me, so I just scooted up there, and it's very nice to be with my family and my cat. Ah, and your cat. That's mm-hmm. good. Yeah. yeah, we were here. We we actually went to Frankenmuth on Sunday. Oh, boy. Was Love that a Frankenmuth. crazy town? Quite an experience, yeah. that is. I bet. <laughs> yeah. I always want to call it Frankenmuth, but that's something <laughs> I don't know why I get confused. That's but funny. Definitely along the lines of the theme of second language acquisition, because there's a lot of good German up there. That's yeah. True. That the signs are all in German, and it's very nice. So, Bill, uh, now that you're here, tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, I like those big, broad questions. <laughs> like to start <laughs> off with, tell you about myself. Okay, um, I'm a native of California, native Spanish and English speaker. Grew up bilingual. <clears throat> My field is uh, linguistics and language acquisition, which I know we'll talk about in a minute. And uh, as you said earlier, I'm in the um, Romance and Classical Studies Department. My primary language there is Spanish, although I also work with French. And then I'm also in the Second Language Studies program, which is a a PhD program here in the college. And I spend my time teaching and researching and doing podcasts and radio shows and traveling around the world and the country and just doing all the fun kind of stuff that academics do. So you're from California. Yes. What brought you to MSU? Well, actually, I didn't come from California MSU. I came to MSU from, a lot of people don't know this, my career started at MSU back in the 80s. Oh. I was here for a couple of years, and I left for a variety of reasons. And now I've come full circle and come back. I decided I wanted to bookend my career. I wanted my beginning and end to match. And so I decided to come back here. No, actually, I came back for the weather. No, no, I'm just <laughs> I, I, I came because I, I came because um, I think there were a lot of interesting challenges that presented themselves at, at, at this job. They were, I was actually asked to apply for the job here, and uh, there was the, the second language studies program had already been developed and was in full force. There were some things going on interesting in Spanish and French, and they wanted me to direct both languages. I mean, there was just interesting array of things going on that didn't match anywhere I'd been previously. So it was, it was a good fit for me. So yeah. One of the things you teach in one of your areas of interest is linguistics, and can you just kind of describe what that is for our audience? I can give you the technical definition. Linguistics is the scientific study of language. And so whatever you interpret scientific study to mean, we do that, apply to language, any facet of language. So, so how does that inform your, your work as the, in the Spanish and French uh, units in terms of 
language instruction? Well, it actually informs it uh, coupled with or linked to uh, work on language acquisition and, and also work on communication and what communication is. And uh, because I work in a formalist theory of language that says the following, language is an abstract, complex system that sits in your head implicitly. And there's no relationship between your explicit knowledge about language and that abstract system. And so one of the things, one of the takeaways from that is, can language be taught explicitly and learned explicitly? Um, and, and my position on that is, no, it can't. Um, it can only be acquired through interaction with the language over time. So that, that right there is a little piece that informs what I do and how I perceive things and work with stuff in a language program. But, do, but does that also mean that how we acquire language doesn't necessarily depend on the language we're trying to acquire? Absolutely. Language is language no matter what. And uh, whether it's Chinese, Japanese, Russian, Spanish, German, sign language, it makes no difference. The processes in your brain and the nature of language itself all kind of work the same way. Hmm. Not kind of, they do work the same way. And there's principles about language that are universal to language around the world. Um, and you have access to those when you're learning a second, third, fourth, fifth language. They're all available to you. And those help you with some aspects, not all aspects of language, but some aspects of language. So, Sam and Hannah, do you guys speak other languages? I took Spanish all through high school and then uh, just the, you know, the basics here at MSU. So I, I can read and write Spanish. All right. Speaking is a little more difficult. Yeah, I wasn't going <laughs> to quiz you. On <laughs> um, I, I was going to give her a test, right? <laughs> and make her talk to me in Spanish. <laughs> Um, I took French in high school, um, and then I came into college and I tested in to uh, French 102, 201, and I took just two semesters of French. Um, I liked it. It was interesting, but I n can't really speak it fluently. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, no. That's, that's one of those misconceptions. You know, it, it takes a long time. Right. An incredible, I mean, look at a child learning the first language from the age of one to the age of five. Spends 13,000 hours or so interacting with language. How long will it take you, Hannah, to get 13,000 hours of language under your belt? Exposure to interaction with language. That's, you'd be like, you'd be retirement age, right? So it, it takes a long time. It's going to hurt our graduation rate. Right <laughs> <laughs> so anyway. So. But I mean, one of the things that, that strikes me, and it goes to this point about language is language and learning it is the same principles apply in the brains operating. But I do have, so I took French in high school. I, I, when I was in, in college, I learned German. I had to learn ancient Greek, which is not a spoken language, but, you know, is, is a, one that you read and write. And I definitely, and maybe this is just idiosyncratic, but I definitely found German easier to learn than French was. Now, French was my first, second language. But part of it, at least this is what I tell myself, I don't know if it's true or not, and Bill, you can tell me if I'm completely off base here, but part of it is I think I'm an auditory learner, and in German, every syllable is articulated as it looks on the page. So it was easier for me, it felt easier for me to kind of it up. The other thing maybe that's most probably important, and this is going to be the differentiator, I bet, is I started learning German when I was studying abroad in Vienna, and I didn't start learning French by being in France. Right. Uh, that makes a difference. Your access to language, um, at your, what we call input, which is the data you're exposed to in the communicative environment, um, <clears throat> makes all the difference in language acquisition. 
And so um, I think what you, what you had was a double dose of input um, in German because if what's on the page is fairly, uh, there's a lot of correspondence, bet- correspondence between grapheme and sound system, and then you also hear things, you can use page input as input for language in your head. You know, for, not for sounds, but for basic structure and for words and things like that. Whereas a language like French, you can't do that. Um, so the, the page input is not the same as the oral input. So you get, dis- you get a disjoint there. And so you get less input in French mm-hmm. than you do in light language like German. Interesting, yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, so, so parsing out in terms of inputs is, is the right. way you think about it. Yeah, because one, that, that dip, one of the few things that differentiates first language acquisition from second language acquisition is your access to written input, if you can get it. Um, and then what kind of that written input is and, and so on. And we're not here to discuss all those <laughs> minutiae of the field, but that's something. And if, you, if you're working with a language that is very, like Spanish has a very close ratio between or correspondence between what's on the page and what you hear. There's a few tweaky things here and there. but um, And so you can use a lot of written input to help you bootstrap yourself in the language along with the auditory input, um, whereas you can't do that in Chinese, for example. You have to learn characters like, mm, that's this, <laughs> these scribbly lines on the page aren't doing me much good right now. Um, so, yeah. But, but that, I mean, that, there's a difference then between learning the first language and learning the second language, or, or some principles are are there no matter what, right? Yeah, principles are there no matter mu- what. There's a lot of talk about the differences between first and second language acquisition, but the way I view the field, and I just actually wrote a paper on this and talked about this recently, is that there's much, much more in common between first and second language acquisition than a lot of second language acquisition people like to admit. Um, it gets swept under the rug because we're so focused on the differences. We keep, and we keep emphasizing the differences to the detriment of the similarities. Mm. Um, this is why we get some weird language programs sometimes or some people making claims about what, it has, what has to happen in language instruction because they're so focused on these three or four differences, they've lost the 20 commonalities or similarities. And so they veer people off course. Um, but I mean, that, that's also really interesting with regard to the input side and, the, and the, a lot of studies that I've read which involve the idea that the more input that young children have to language, books being read to them, access to words, the, the more literate they are, the, the more intelligent, the more emotionally intelligent they are because of the high input. Right. And, and th- that, that also is, again, one of the similarities between first and second language acquisition. People often talk in second language acquisition about variability in, out- in outcome, that you take 100 second language learners and they're all at different levels of achievement. Hannah says she can't speak French very well. Uh, Sam says maybe I can eke out a word of Spanish and so on. But somebody else can carry on a conversation in Spanish. Fine. But that difference exists with children as well. We just don't focus on them because by a certain age, they're all at a similar point. But then these literacy differences cause differential outcomes in terms of the, glo- the globality. Can I say sure. globality? <laughs> yeah, the globalness so. the globalness of uh, their language abilities. And so there's a lot of first language variation as well. We just don't focus on it. So you've been talking about the research you've been doing. You just put out a paper. Usually there's two types of research approaches, you know, one through theory and one through experimental. How do you go about balancing those? Well, I do both. Um, I do both theoretical work and I do empirical work. And, um, and, and there are different theories that are used in second language research, and, and I use basically two of them. <laughs> My own theory, input processing, the framework I created back in the 90s. Um, and then also generative theory, which is the theory I use for the nature of language. Um, but then, I mean, and you develop ideas, and you, like, I have a lot of 
theoretical essays about what should happen, can't happen, and so on. And then we do empirical work as well, where we just go get data from people. Um, and there's all different kinds of data we can get to show, depending on what your research questions are. So it's like any other scientific endeavor. I think one of the interesting things from my perspective about combining those approaches is that you can get into what I think of as a kind of virtuous circle, which is you, you theorize your questions and then you are put them into practice, study them in the classroom, in the way in which people are actually learning the languages, and then sort of check them so that the, the theory is enriched by the practice and then the practice can be enriched by the theory. Exactly. Exactly. And a, and a lot of the research in second language acquisition is even involved with classroom. We just go and get learners after they've been, they've been exposed to languages for 20 years, for example. We get data on them. And then you'd be surprised to know that um, <clears throat> there's a lot of research comparing classroom and non-classroom learners. And again, we see tremendous similarities between the two contexts. Um, and the only thing that seems to be a factor impacting the two differences is literacy. Hmm but not language acquisition itself. So very interesting stuff. So when we think of, you say research a lot, and there's a lot of research within language, um, when a lot of people think of research, they think of lab work and everything. So what does a language experiment or a research test look like? Ooh, um, how much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try to condense my current research in like awesome. three minutes. Okay? I'm doing research right now on what's called the typology of word order and its effect on learning case marking in a language. And I'm using classical Latin because nobody speaks it, right? So it's, it's a good language to use. Nobody knows it. And so we're, getting, we're looking at two populations of learners, one that's getting what's called subject-object-verb word order sentences as the input systematically in the treatment. Um, and another group that's getting subject-verb-object word order. And in typology of languages, what's been discovered is that subject-object-verb languages um, like to have case marking. Subject, verb, object languages don't. Doesn't mean they can't, doesn't mean they don't like it. So you have a much, much higher incidence of marking case on nouns. Um, so subject, object, verb, you have little case markings on the subject and objects, um, whereas in su subject, verb, object languages, you tend not to have that case marking. And so what we're looking at is after exposure to this treatment, um, are the learners who are exposed to SOV sentences only as opposed to SVO sentences? Because Latin was, even though it was SOV, it was a subject, object, verb language, you you could, you know, Spanish became subject verb object like Italian, right? So it did the Latin degenerated into subject verb object. You can you can have subject verb object in classical Latin. So after these two treatments, is the subject object verb group further along in case marking than the subject verb object group? Because something about the mind is predisposed to look for case marking in subject object verb input as opposed to subject verb object input. So that's an example that we're doing right now. I didn't describe the actual details of it, but that's what we're looking at. That's uh, super interesting and sounds like very scientific. Yeah. Well, why is that? Why is it language ac acquisition, you think, you know, we're a liberal arts college. Why are we talking science? Well, why shouldn't we be talking science? There's such a thing as philosophy of science. What would you like philosophy of science to be? In a philosophy department That's or a science question. department? It should be both, actually, right? And so when you have philosophy of science, for example, um, and you talk about what the scientific method is and what it means to be a rationalist, then um, there's every good reason for humanists to talk about that. I mean, the, the tradition of, when you think about the tradition of the humanities that came out of the Middle Ages was part and parcel of a rejection against a church-dominated structure, right? And so both humanities and science emerged at the same time because with the same idea of let's look at the world in the way it is as opposed to 
I suppose some Italian is how it is, right? And so I don't see necessarily that there's a split between the two. Um, the method, the actual methods you use might be different, but the, what you're trying to uncover over time is, you know, how the world works. And in and, and, and humanistic endeavors, you're talking about people, how people work in a certain sense. So it's, it's kind of the same thing. What do things mean? That's a question that's answerable by looking at stuff. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think of that. I, I think of a liberal arts education as including certainly the sciences. A, a traditional liberal arts education includes that. And and one of the ways in which I think about that is kind of moving from the surface of things to the depth. Right. And deepening our understanding of of human life, of the world around us, of of our relationships with one another. And, I mean, the, the really exciting thing about language as we perform it here in the college is it, it expands it extends across the full spectrum of ways of knowing from cultural ways of knowing and literature to issues of pedagogy to very scientific studies of neurology and how the mind processes languages. So it really extends the full, yeah. full range of, of I, knowing. I mean, here's a good example. One of the biggest philosophical discussions for hundreds of years has been the concept of free will, right? And that's always been a humanistic sort of endeavor, that discussion, right? You know you've looked yeah, at that. Right. But neuroscience over the last 30 years has been looking at it from a scientific perspective. And now you've got with the idea that there may not even be free will because of the way the brain works. And so now you've got these two distinct things coming together to have to talk to each other about the nature of something that is a very human thing, free will, right? So there's an example of how these two things can complement and work together. I think one of the interesting things about the work that you're doing, Bill, is that, you know, although you have work going on in labs, you really are recognizing the holistic way in which language is always processed and is always learned. So you can't divorce the the holistic human from the scientific study of right. how language works. Right. That's why when we look when we go into classrooms and other classrooms, we have to look at the human human interactions, how it is that teachers and students interact with each other, all those kinds of things take on a different dimension that's non-lab-like uh, as we try to work with people to develop our programs and, uh, and our curricula. So. You probably get this question every time you're interviewed. But yes, what are yes, some... I, I'm available. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the benefits of someone learning a second language? Oh, my gosh, there are lots of benefits. Economic benefits, obviously. People who speak a second language fluently often can earn in between five and $10,000 more on an initial job salary compared to somebody else. That's a sort of a national norm. Um, but then, you know, then there are cognitive benefits. Um, there's some research. It's, it's, it's kind of being debated right now, but um, that being bilingual or fluent in two languages um, has offset time for dementia and old age things or old age memory problems. Um, again, that's being debated right now, but we'll see how that pans out over the next five years. Um, but then there are, there, are, there are demonstrable, these are not debated, cognitive flexibility benefits that because people who work with two languages are constantly suppressing one language while they're working another and doing, because you have to do that when you have two languages, even if it's a second language, you have to keep one at bay. So that gives you some cognitive flexibility that makes you think more on your toes. And that's not quite the way to put it, but you know what I'm saying? It just gives you some moment by moment ability to, to, to multitask in, the, in your working memory as it were. Um, and then there, you know, there are other there are all the cultural benefits of travel and 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 all those kinds of things, enrichment kind of things. So, everything from the human side to the economic side, there's all kinds of benefits, good ones, great ones. Yeah, one of, one and you get to talk to people like me. Look at this, because <laughs> we do second language stuff. See, yeah, I, I mean, 
one of the questions that I have associated with that is the is the question of, you know, does does lang- do, do different languages give you different kinds of thoughts in the sense that uh, the framework through which we can kind of understand things. So, you know, if if language is in a certain way the medium through which we understand our the world in which we live, then it does seem that certain languages have access to certain kinds of ideas, certain kinds of thoughts that might be either inaccessible to other languages or um, maybe, as you say, repressed or, or, or subsumed in a certain kind of way. So what do you think about that, the sort of whole idea of, of different languages giving access to different kinds of ideas? Yeah, that whole Worfian kind of yeah. stuff in the past. Um, <clears throat> I mean, that's debated as well. Um, and my perspective, having read all that stuff years ago and, and thinking about it, is that at his or her core, a human being is a human being. And so language, what language tries to do is express, be part of human cognition and tie into what it is a human being needs in order to use language and have language work effectively for him or her. Um, So at its core around the world, language is going to have ideas and and ways of expression that are going to be similar. Then there are going to be some peripheral things that aren't because there's things that are culturally specific. Uh, that doesn't mean they're not knowable. That just means that they're cultural specific and that um, you might have to you might have to learn those concepts when you are uh, engaged in another culture. Um, and so I don't know if those really shape the way you see the world. I think the actual it's the other way around, that the way you see the world shapes language use. Um, and that's why that's why different cultures develop different kinds of expressions because, again, human beings need to use language to see the world the way it is. And language is part of cognition. We actually think in language and all that kind of stuff. And so, um, so I think the actual way to look at it is not that language influences how we see the world, but how we see the world influences the way language takes shape. Not at its core, but in its more peripheral parts because at the core, I think all languages basically behave the same. But does, I mean, so w- w- what's your stance on the language as the differentiating feature between humans and non-humans? I mean, is that, are, are what about non-human animals and yeah. I, 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 communication? I, 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 this is where you get into technical definitions. Again, I'm a formalist. I do, I do generative kinds of work. And in that sphere, we say, yes, indeed, what distinguishes um, human beings language human language from anything else is the the algorithmic computational nature of language so for example no animal has uh, that we know of can do things like make grammatical judgment tasks in the sense of if i give you the following sentence um, you can you can say gonna instead of going to right so mm-hmm. if i say um, are you going to the, are you going to go to the store tonight and then if I say, are you going to go to the store? You say, yeah, that sounds good, right? right? But then if I say, are you going to the store? And then I say, are you going to the store? You're going to say, wait a minute, you can't contract that going to there to gonna. You have, you have this ability to put restrictions on things that we, we don't find in all the times we've, we've looked at animals and the way animal communication happens that it doesn't work that way because um, they have a very more one-to-one symbolic thing. So we talk about animal communication but not animal language. And so what humans share with animals is communication but only humans have this symbolic computational system 
that we call language. Hmm. Super interesting. And uh, if you... <laughs> right? There's more than just 2% that differentiates you from the chimpanzees. <laughs> you see that? Um, if you think that Bill is very well-spoken, it's probably because he has his own podcast called Tea with BVP. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. Oh, great. How many people you have listening? We'll get some new, we'll get some new listeners. <laughs> yeah, we have, yeah, exactly. Yeah, That's the idea of this collaboration. We're going yeah. to get Collaboration. Well, we talk about, we are, at the end of our show every week, we send people to the college website to see what the podcasts are so they know that all the different things the college is engaged in. Um, we have a Thursday show. It's live from 3 to 4. Um, so we actually field calls. People call in, they tweet, they write, whatever. And so it's an interactive hour show. Um, and... Uh, it's a lot of fun. We we call it car talk meets second language acquisition because <laughs> I don't know if y'all know this, but I used to, I used to, used to do stand up comedy and I used to be an actor and so on, and so I like to bring that to the task of the interactions, and uh, um, so we do those shows live, but then they're podcasts, so you can listen to them afterwards as well, and um, then we do show we take it live um, to conferences. We just came back from American Council on teaching right. the foreign languages last week. We did a show live there on Saturday. When we were at a conference, we move it to Saturday because. Uh, we're usually traveling on Thursday to get to a conference. So, But we're live every Thursday, 3 to 4. People can call in. You ask, we usually have a topic, um, but even if you want to ask something that's off topic, we don't care. Our topic this week is, um, what is the role of conscious knowledge in language development? And so, uh, yeah, that's going to be an interesting one. Yeah, I never can call in, but uh, I listen to him, uh, to that when I yeah. when I'm doing the dishes <laughs> over the weekend. I have a colleague who does the same thing. Whenever she does the housework or cooking, she's got us on in the background. <laughs> Tea with BVP. Yeah. So, what kind of listeners do you have? Everything from elementary school teachers to college professors to we have students. Some we had a student called in. An Just, MSU student? No, he's a student in Southern California. Oh. Just called in. He said. Yeah, I, I my teacher um, introduced me to your show last year. Now I just listen to it on my own. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So he called in one time. Yeah, we got all kinds of people in all different languages. We get people from around the world. We have people calling from Morocco, from um, Oman, Japan, um, Europe, different parts of Europe. Um, we've had people calling from Mexico, Chile. So pretty famous in the podcast world. <laughs> I tell you, <ya. laughs> our goals. Hey, ain't no cheap meats in here. Let me tell you. <laughs> All right. Well, on this podcast, we like to do a little something we call the rapid fire round. So uh, we're going to ask you questions, and I want you to just think of the first answer that pops into your head. Are oh my you God! Ready? Let me get a sip of water for this. Okay, I'm, 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 getting, I'm getting dehydrated here. It's nerve wracking. Yes, no, no, yes, <laughs> yes maybe exactly. five, and A, B, C. Have yep. those. For you did it. Yeah. Good. And we're done. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> What's your favorite ice cream at the dairy store? I don't eat ice cream anymore. I'm paleo, so I avoid dairy. Oh. But if I were to go to there, I would have some kind of chocolate ice cream. Favorite place on campus? My favorite place on campus? Oh, sitting behind the admin building across the bank of the river on either side mm-hmm. with the ducks mm-hmm. and the swans. That, that's exactly where you're talking about. Uh, what should people do this weekend? What should people do this weekend? Um, Oh, God, what's going on this way? I don't know what's... I don't know. Don't ask me. I have no social life. I'm the wrong person to ask about what to do in a weekend. I'll be... Saturday, I, I work out with my trainer. I wash my sheets, iron my sheets, <laughs> take my dog on long walks. That's what I do on Saturdays. I'm pretty much a homebody. Now, I understand you periodically like to have a little bit of rum. What's your favorite rum? I do not drink rum at all. I drink oh. vodka. Oh, vodka. <laughs> I knew it was something. Chopin oh, vodka. Right. I'll take a bottle. In, I'll take a bottle for Christmas, Chris. Uh, all right. There you go. Chopin. Chopin okay. vodka. Have you had the opportunity to take a Dean Long selfie? 
Oh my gosh, yes, we have. We've taken them to airports. We've taken them here. Oh, we've taken yeah. them, true. Taken yeah, them as often. Yeah, I remember yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every time we see each other. So you've been on two podcasts, but what's your favorite one to listen to? You know, I don't have time to listen to much. And you know how our show got started is because I listen to radio shows on my car when I'm driving. And I don't know if you know, I'm a big fan of progressive radio. And Stephanie Miller does a show 9 to 12 uh, Eastern time every day. And that's actually how Tea with BVP got started is we were in my office a year and a half ago. And it was Daniel Trago and Leanne Spino and myself. Could we do something like, if you listen to the Stephanie Miller show, that would be fun to do some outreach to teachers and people out there to talk about second language, but funny, interactive, and so on. And so that's what I listen to. And here we are. What's your favorite language? To, what's your favorite language to speak and teach? My favorite language to speak and teach. I guess I guess it have to be Spanish. I mean, I taught both Spanish and English because those are my languages. French, I don't really teach. I sub sometimes in French for some of my instructors, but I don't really teach French. Um, and I find all languages fascinating, but but Spanish, of course, because it's one of my native languages. And finally, what would be the perfect gift for you this holiday season? Two bottles of Chopin, not, not one, not one, two bottles. All right. Make that three, make that three. Because <laughs> there's three of you sitting at the table, so I expect That's one from true. each of you. Okay. So. Put that on you know, I, mean, I ain't doing this show for free, you know, I'll tell you right now. <laughs> All right. Did I just tongue-tie Hannah? I just no, tongue-tied her. You got her. A little bit. Is that an official language uh, term there, tongue-tie? I yeah, tongue-tie yeah, someone, yeah. you tongue-tie. Yeah. That's yeah. me off. What's great about That's English good. is you can make a verb out of almost any noun. Mm. That's good. All right. <laughs> We're going to start wrapping it up. Let's do our acknowledgments. We want to thank our technical producer, producer, Daniel Trago, our marketing director, Ryan Kilcoin, and, of course, the College of Arts and Letters. Check out the college's podcast at cal.msu.edu slash about slash podcast. And last but not least, the ideas and opinions expressed on this program do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Letters, any of our sponsors, or any official entities of Michigan State University. Be sure to tune in in two weeks for an all-new podcast about the great things happening at Cal. Yay, Cal! Thanks for being here, and thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you all. You guys are great. I love doing this. Yay! How much fun was this? So much fun. Go green! Go (laughs) green. Go white. (laughs) Go ducks. Go swans. Take me to the river. Ooh, this is better than I'm listening.